0: God, we ask that you bless the reading of your word, uh, that it would do what you intended to do, uh, in, invading our hearts, transforming it, and causing us to be like you. I pray that you would uh, receive our worship this morning and be pleased by it, and that we, too, would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you again to uh, New Springs Church. Um, just a fair warning, my voice has been a little bit funky the last day or two, so if I sound like an alien, I'm, I'm not. Um, but hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll get through it. Um, if you're a first or second time guest, we'd love for you to fill out a Connect card, which you should have received in the bulletin. Uh, you can also do that electronically on the QR code that's there by snapping a picture of it. Uh, and then we have a gift for you in the back, although there's a lot of new faces and we don't have that many gifts. So you know maybe today's a, a lesson in failure for you and you'll, you'll grow from it. Um, We're going to continue on in our story series, which we've been doing for the last uh, five weeks. So this is week five, and what we're doing is we're going from Genesis to Revelation, and we're looking at the grand story of the Bible. And the logic behind this is twofold. One, we live in a culture that's captivated by stories. We read them, we binge watch them, we pay for movies to see them, and we're captivated by good, well-told stories that have uh, a resolution. Well, it's our belief and hopefully your belief that the best story of all is what's found in the Bible. And it's one that all of us are actually included in. And so what we we wanted to do as a church is march through some of the bigger stories in the Bible and demonstrate how they all connect to show God's grand plan for all of us. And so this morning, we're looking at King David primarily and what God did through him. Uh, Last week, we looked at Moses' construction of the tabernacle. And his construction of the tabernacle led us to understand that God set up this sacrificial system where they would sacrifice lambs and goats and bulls and rams and things of that nature in order for God's presence to be with man. See the problem that we established weeks and weeks and weeks ago was that human beings are sinful. And in order for us to be in the presence of God, which is what we need the most, our sin. Needed to be taken care of. And so that's what God did through the tabernacle, which points forward to Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 1, we read that Jesus Christ uh, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Uh, And through him, we can have God with us once again. And so the historical setting that we're in now is Israel's transitioning from a group of people that got brought out of slavery by God, and God's going to form them into a nation. And into a kingdom, after Moses, God raises up a man by the name of Joshua. So, if you were with us uh, reading our, our uh, reading our, our two-minute drills throughout the week, you would have read Joshua on Wednesday or Thursday of this week. Um, and Joshua's job was to bring the Israelites into the Promised Land and carry on a conquest. So, take all of the nations that are there, drive them out, establish the land for Israel. What ends up happening? I don't know why I'm squeaking so much. Uh, what, what, end, what ends up happening is Israel doesn't fully take over the land. So in the book of Judges, at the beginning, you see that they start to cohabitate with the people there and start to intermingle with uh, their faith and with their religion. And this was a bad thing. And the reason I say all of that is what becomes revealed in the book of Judges is that Israel needed a king. It needed someone who was godly, someone who's devoted to the word of God, someone who's humble, to lead them to follow God and worship him as he established his kingdom. A man who would lead his people to worship and follow God. So the question for us this morning in 2019, who is your king? See whether we're aware of it or not, we are ruled by something or someone. Now for most people, what rules us is our own thoughts mixed with some cultural ideals. The way way that works in the church is I understand some things about God. I have a general picture as to what the Bible calls me to do. But what I do is I weigh them against the cultural norms and standards. And if something like, for example, love one another, that's a high ethic in our culture today. And so the Bible also says that. We match those together. We say, cool, I'll do that. But when the Bible says says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can get to the Father except through him, that doesn't mesh well with our culture. And if our culture is king, we then take the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and we toss it out. We say, I can't go that far. I can't take Jesus as my one true king. Nobody else around me does. I must buy into what the culture says, that Jesus is one king amongst many. And so if you do that, Uh, If you do that, you take yourself and you take cultural norms as your king, it's going to lead you to disaster. And when you approach God's word in that way, you're revealing that in spite of whatever you may think about yourself, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I'm a good person, if I take God's word and I put it underneath cultural standards, I am revealing that Jesus Christ is not my king. He isn't directing your life. You are. And so what we need, what Israel needed, and what you need is a humble king, a righteous king who will lead you to worship and follow God all the days of your life. So we'll start with our first point, a king like other nations. Before we get back to 2 Samuel 7, uh, which my sister read, uh, which makes us a little bit like Westboro Baptist, right? Keep it in the fam- family. Some of you will get that reference. Not um, Not quite. Uh, After Israel failed to complete the conquest, they too recognized that they needed a king. So not only is God recognizing they need someone to lead them and guide them, the Israelites realize this themselves. And so we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8. So just in these last five minutes, we've gone Exodus and we've gone Deuteronomy, we've gone Joshua, we've gone Judges. 1 Samuel 8 tells us that a group of elders approach Samuel the prophet and they say, we need a king. Whole system of judges ruling over us. This isn't working, and they say this in First Samuel chapter eight. Behold, this is the elders speaking to Samuel. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, like all the nations. use this one. Sorry about that. I'm going to use this one. Cool. So they say, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now if you've read that passage before, you've probably concluded that Israel was wrong in asking for a king. But the fact of the matter is it's not that they were asking for a king that's wrong. It's the type of king that they asked for. They wanted a king like all the nations. See, the system of judges wasn't working, and they were spiraling into more wickedness. So they did need someone to lead them and guide them and bring them, into, uh, bring them into a relationship with King Jesus. But what they wanted was a king like the nations, and that's where they went wrong. If you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17, what you get here is these words from Moses uh, that he receives from God before they enter the promised land. And God, of course, in his wisdom knows exactly what's going to happen. And this is what he tells them, again, before they enter the promised land in regards to having a king. Beginning in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, he says this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So God says this is going to happen. You're going to want a king like the nations that are around you. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you. So you see, God has no problem with it. He says, go ahead and set a king over you. Whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest... lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So those are all the things that the king should not do. Now listen carefully what he should do. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law And these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers and that they may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom. He and his children in Israel. And so what we see is that what Israel needs is a humble king whose heart may not be lifted above his brothers that would read the word of God and follow it all the days of his life. See, they needed a king who would lead himself and lead his people into righteousness. You see the difference there? They wanted a king like all the other nations. God said, you need a king who's going to lead you to worship me. Often that's exactly what we want, right? See, I think the, the big resistance to Christianity is not an assessment of the facts And then coming to a rational conclusion, these things must be false because of these other things that I've studied. But more often, it's the fact that worshiping God, attending church on a Sunday, devoting my life to a king like Jesus Christ, it's peculiar. People are going to think it's strange. And one of the biggest fears we have as human beings is standing out in any way, shape, or form. We don't want to stand out. We want to fit in. We want to worship a king like all the other nations. We just want to do what everybody else is doing because that's so much safer. And that's what the Israelites wanted. See, around them, they had other nations where they can pull examples from. Here's Israel being ruled by judges that God raises up. But meanwhile, their next-door neighbors, Egypt, has uh, a pharaoh. And the pharaoh was believed to be the central factor of the cosmic order. And from from the pharaoh emanated all things. Or next to Israel, you had Mesopotamia. They believed their king actually had divine powers given to him by God that gave him the ability to rule. The Canaanites believed that their king was divine and also immortal. And so you see what these nations surrounding Israel believed about their king. He's strong. He's powerful. He's divine. He's got God within him. He may even be God himself. And Israel wanted a king like that. And so what they do in 1 Samuel 9 is they go and they pick someone who they believe fits that description. You know the story. They select a man named Saul. And Saul's described as a foot taller than everybody else and much more handsome than everybody in, in, uh, in Israel at the time. And so they pick him and they say, this man looks like he's got the power and the authority to lead our kingdom and the strength and might and dominance. But we, want, we learn quickly that Saul is not the king that God had chosen. See, this was a king like all the nations. This was not the humble king who would not acquire many horses, who would not acquire many wives, who would not have excessive silver and gold like we read in Deuteronomy 17. He was a man devoted to himself, devoted to power, devoted to strength, and he didn't follow God's instructions or lead Israel to do that. So God rejected him. And you know how the story goes. He raises up this little shepherd boy. We read in, uh, I believe it's 1 Samuel 16, where uh, Jesse lines up all of his sons, right? Samuel shows up, and he says, I'm here to anoint a king. Jesse lines up all of his sons except for one. I mean, how does David feel, right? He gets left out. He's got all all his brothers are lined up. He's in the back cleaning sheep poop, and his dad says, I can't, like, you're obviously not a king. But that's who God wanted. And the words, literally in the passage, uh, where that God looks, uh, God doesn't see as man sees, uh, God looks on at the heart. And so God lifts up David and gives us a glimpse of what an ideal king would be. So what Israel needed and what you need is a king like David. Just this past week, um, I read a Facebook post uh, from, a fr- from a friend that I know who had gone off to uh, a college, a Bible college, to study to become a pastor. Um Through that time and studying to become a pastor, he since left the faith. So if you know Bible college or you know seminary, it's a rigorous study. You're looking deeply into the text and the original languages. You're studying opposing theories. And he started to read books and came to the conclusion that he believed that God, uh, he wasn't sure whether God existed. Uh, He came to the conclusion that the Bible was to be read as literature and not as literal. Those are his exact words. He concluded that what's most important is that we, le- we lead healthy lives and love one another and not take the Bible as our guide and, and the authoritative scripture and the word of God. And I'd like to suggest to you that that kind of a conclusion, the Bible's literary and not literal, that our greatest purpose is to love one another and to lead healthy lives, that this is a modern example of allowing culture to be your king rather than allowing Jesus Christ to be your king. See, love without the perceived restrictions of religion seems like freedom to everybody, but it's not. See, what the Bible presents to us is worshiping Jesus is actually freedom from slavery and brings you into a life where you're free to worship him, rather than the shackles of your own sinful nature. See, trying to come up with a strategy to live life well and be healthy and love other people and read the Bible as literary, you're setting up for yourself a king like the other nations. It's important to note that this is a very modern Western idea. This is an idea that's been around for centuries. The idea that you can live a healthy life without the aid of the gods or a god, that's, that's brand new. That, that's not an idea that's been around for a long time. It's a very modern Western idea that you can separate love from the divine. As a matter of fact, I would say that love, the virtue of love, is actually something that definitely comes from the God of the Bible. See, we worship a God who exists in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a perfect trinity exemplifying this love for all eternity. And so he creates human beings in his image and bestows us with his love. And so like 1 John says, we love because God first loved us. Without the God of the Bible, love is just a figment of our imagination. It's not real. You cannot have love without the God of the Bible. And so love is a virtue that's rooted and, find, and finds its fullness in Jesus Christ. You can't have it without him. And so the humble, loving king From this Bible is who must reign over our lives in order for us to fully understand this. The Old Testament sets up David in this initial example of being the ideal king, as being someone who's going to point us to God. I told you about his humility and how the Lord doesn't see as man sees, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, the Lord wasn't going to select a king like the other nations. He was going to do something that we did not expect. He wanted a man after his own heart. And that's why he chose David. And so David becomes the king, the first king to unify the tribes of Israel. We read right at the beginning of 2 Samuel 7, he comes into Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant with him. And for the first time in Israel's history, you have a united kingdom where you have worship and you have rule happening in the same place from the same person. But as we get to 2 Samuel 7, the passage that we read this morning, so that's all backstory to get you to where we want to go this morning. I promise the rest isn't, isn't nearly as long. But rather than uh, what, what David wants is he looks out and he sees that the Ark of the Covenant is traveling about in a tent. So remember, the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God. It's a symbolic presence of God. And so David says, I've got this grand palace. I'm living large. I'm eating food like I'm at Texas Day Brazil. People just serving me meat whenever I want it wine whenever I want it, just the best stuff. My house is fancy and nice, and yet God is traveling about in a tent. And so David says to Nathan the prophet, shouldn't I build God a house? Now think about the delusion here. David is thinking that he's so important, so skilled, and so wealthy that he can do God a favor. In his mind, man, this poor God traveling about in a tent, Let me see if I can pull together some of my resources and help him out, build a nice grand temple for God to dwell in. Wouldn't he like that? Wouldn't God look down at me and my benevolence to give up all my money and build him a temple and think, what a wonderful guy. I'm glad I raised him up as king. Hope you hear how ridiculous that is. See, and sometimes we take on that same delusion. We believe we're so gifted. I studied here. I got a degree from this institution. This is my job. This is my position at my job. This is what my peers think of me. Wouldn't God love to have me on his team doing things for him? Please understand, God doesn't need you to do anything. right? God's going to reign supreme whether you exist or not. So a few years ago, Steve Jobs passed away. Technology's been doing just fine. Next year, we're going to elect a new president, 2020. I promise whoever we pick and however that makes you feel, the sun will still rise and the sun will still set and Jesus will still reign as king. He doesn't need any of us. As a matter of fact, the gift that Jesus gives to us is saving us, giving us a new heart, and then including us in his mission and giving us the power to do it. Any strength. Any intellect, any power, any ability that you have is a gift from Jesus Christ to be used on his mission. And so what God does is he makes an incredible promise to David. He's gracious to him. God could laugh at David and say, look, man, you're you're a little bit ridiculous. But what God does is he makes a promise. I want you to look with me at 2 Samuel 7 again. We're going to look at verse 11 through 16. Excuse me. And here's what he says to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is a play on words. David wants to build God a house. God says, David, I'm going to build you a house. And by house, he means dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes from the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now right, we're going to power through. My voice is, is, is given out, but we'll, we'll do this. Uh, What God's promising to David is a dynasty, a king to come from the family line of David. And so the promise is first fulfilled in Solomon, right? Solomon's David's son, and he builds this grand temple for God to dwell in. But you see here, if you you looked carefully at the passage, there's all these I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will. And this is God telling David what he's going to do. And the big promise is I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. So as you're reading that and you're processing that, how can David's son have a kingdom that lasts forever? Solomon's been dead for a really, really long time. A really long time. He has no kingdom because he's dead. So what is it that God is promising David here? Well, he promises him a dynasty. And not just a dynasty. He promises him a particular offspring who's going to rise up and be king overall. And his kingdom will be established forever. Immediately, when you open up the New Testament, the very first book is Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, and it opens with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Why does Matthew call Jesus the son of David? I look back at the records. I look back. 2 Samuel 7 looks to me like David's son is Solomon. Did Matthew make a misprint here? What's he talking about? No, he's the son of David because he's the promised offspring from the line of David. See, David symbolized a humble king. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll see his name specifically referenced over 60 times. And then you'll see allusions to him countless times. You'll see the Psalms, which he wrote, quoted over and over and over again. We started our call to worship this morning with Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Psalm in the entire New Testament because it references David. And it references Christ. See, David symbolized a humble king who brought worship and rule together. And if we had more time, I'd show you the many faults of David, which show that he he wasn't the one to come. He's just a man, made many mistakes, rape and murder being two of them. Those are big mistakes. But his ultimate role was to point forward to Jesus nonetheless. And David was an ideal king in one sense, but because of his mistakes, he wasn't the perfect one to come. And he couldn't rule forever. So what David establishes as he passes on, it gave Israel a picture. We need someone who loves God, who reads his law, who tries to rule us with that in mind. But we need someone greater than David. David can't fulfill what we ultimately need. And that's exactly who Jesus Christ is presented to be. There's an interesting story in Matthew chapter 20. We don't have time to read all of it, but we will read a part of it. And in Matthew chapter 20, you have Jesus' followers along with him. And Jesus has now been teaching about this coming kingdom for about three years. So it's, it's a central point of his ministry. And James and John, two of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, Their mom comes along. You have to love this because this is typical. I I taught for years. This is how a typical parent-teacher conference goes. So the mom comes up to Jesus, and she just wants what's best for her kids. doesn't matter that she's a little bit delusional and doesn't understand what's going on. She just wants what's best for James and for John. And she says, hey, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, how about sitting James and John at the right and left-hand side of your throne? What do you think about that? What she's trying to do is give her son's power and status and authority. She's believing that Jesus is getting ready to take over the world. She's missing the point. She doesn't have the slightest clue as to what Jesus' kingdom is about. And so as we read further in Matthew chapter 20, uh, look at verses 25 through 28. I think it will be up on the screen. And this is Jesus' response to uh, James and John's mom. For whatever reason, I marked it with tape in my Bible, so it's all stuck together. It's just not smart. Um, Beginning in verse 25, it says this. But Jesus called them to him, called his disciples to him, and he says, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, kings like other nations. This is the kind of rule that uh, James and John's mom is looking for. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you would be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus Christ came to establish a kingdom in an entirely new way. No one had ever heard of a kingdom like this one. Kings are like pharaohs, right? They're supposed to be endowed with divine abilities and rule with an iron fist. And when the slaves complain, you double their workload and you travel on these grand horses and you conquer nations. And Jesus says, I came to serve. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. What kind of a kingdom is that? See, this is a radical kingdom characterized by love for one another and service. A kingdom where Jesus reigns as king in our hearts, not from a throne in a political center in a capital of a nation, in our hearts. See, if you've been paying attention throughout this series, God's been hinting at this all along. He created Adam and Eve. And he said, I'm going to make you fruitful and multiply, and I want you to exercise dominion over this world. Kings exercise dominion. He wanted Adam and Eve to be his kingly representatives. At Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 19, God calls Israel a kingdom of priests. Just think about the oxymoron that's in there, a kingdom of priests. Priests don't fight. They don't have any power. They don't carry swords. They're not weaponized. They're not soldiers. They pray and light candles. We're a kingdom of priests? What does that mean? This is a group of people saved from slavery and brought into freedom by a king. See, a king who was willing to dwell in their hearts and make them like himself. See, what Jesus' goal was is to take Israel through the waters of the Red Sea and make them loving and sacrificial and servant-hearted and committed to the truth that can actually save them, a kingdom of priests. And First Peter takes that idea and he applies it to us. We've talked about that before. He calls the church a kingdom of priests. We don't have swords. We don't have weapons. We don't have power. We don't have authority. Just a quick comment. Sometimes we, uh, sometimes we look at celebrities and we have this desire that, uh, you know, this celebrity or that, like it's been in the news that Kanye West has become a Christian. And I really hope that that's true. But it's, it's kind of a strange desire that we have as believers that we just want somebody powerful and famous to be a Christian because it legitimizes our faith. That's not the kind of faith that we have. We've got a faith from a king who wants us to be humble and loving and servant-hearted. I, we don't need celebrity representatives. We just need Christ, right? We just need him to rule over our hearts and cause us to be like him. And so I submit to you again the question, who is the king of your heart? Are you allowing culture to dictate the, the, the pursuits and the motivations of your life? Do you allow the ethics of, of be yourself and live life the way that you want it? Is that how you run your life? Or can you hear the subtle voice of your Lord in your heart calling you to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength? Do you hear the subtle voice of your Lord who calls out in Philippians 2 and says to consider others better than yourselves, more important than you are? And so you're looking out for their needs more than you're looking out for your own. To seek, to serve rather than to be served. Is that the motivation of your heart? See, we are a kingdom of priests. And guess what priests do besides lighting the candles? They draw people to God that's what we're here for. We have Jesus reigning over our hearts so that we might draw people to him. We're a radical group of people who live radically different than the rest of the world around us. See, it's no secret. We live in South Florida, and South Florida economics say coming to an elementary school on Sunday morning is silly. Don't you know that there's two-for-one Bellinis at brunch and two-for-one martinis that you can have. Why are you sitting in elementary school listening to someone talk and singing songs that aren't as good as the ones that are on the radio? Skipping travel, basketball, and baseball, and soccer, and swimming to come and gather together to pray? Make no mistake about it. The world looks at that, and they think that that's weird. But the king that we serve has promised to dwell our hearts to draw us into conformity to him, to forgive us of the sin that so entangles us and makes us enemies with God, to cancel that record of debt, to make us brand new, and to give us life eternal and everlasting, a kingdom of priests. And so again, I ask, who is your king? Are you serving this Jesus, the one who's promised son of David, who's going to come to give his life as a ransom for many, who exercises his service not by taking the sword and executing, but by being executed himself. Not by conquering nations, but by being conquered by one so that he might conquer the grave, which is way more important. And so I pray and my hope is that you would worship that Jesus. Let him be your king and follow him all the days of your life. Let's pray. Father, you are a good King. We have so many examples of bad ones, of ones with ulterior motives that uh, wouldn't lead us to repentance but would lead us to uh, some kind of fleeting glory. But here we are in an elementary school with music stands, microphones that work sometimes, but hearts that are totally devoted to you. And we're proud to be part of your kingdom. We are proud to call you our King and we ask that you would lead us and you would guide us as our humble, loving, serving king who has done all this for us. We thank you in gratitude, and we ask that you would lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.